K-Pop Unmuted, a place for in-depth discussion of K-Pop. We're your hosts, Stephen Knight and Scott Interante. And on this episode, we're discussing KCON 2016 with our guest, Tamar Herman. Tamar is a co-founder of Cult Scene and a contributing writer to Billboard and NBCNews.com. Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Very excited to be here. We're here, of course, to talk about uh, KCON 2016, which you two are lucky enough to have attended this year. I wasn't able to make it. Tamar, what's, what's your history with KCON? Is this your first year or have you been in the past? So this is my first year covering KCON New York, even though I was just there for Friday. This is the third year I've attended KCON LA and I've done coverage for Cult Scene, but because we're a small little blog, we've never got enough press passes. So I've always like been doing it unofficially. So like this year I like went big and I was covering for Billboard. So it was my first official year covering KCON. And Scott, I think this is your second year? This is my second year. I've, I've been to both of the New York editions of KCON, now that it's split into KCON LA and KCON New York. It's a lot of fun. It's actually the only experience I have seeing K-pop artists live in concert. So it's a good way to do that, where they bring everyone together, and it's like one place, one ticket, one price to see a, a bunch of really amazing acts. There's pluses and minuses to the way they do it, right? You get to see a lot of different acts all at once, but some group that you really love shows up and they do three songs and they they clear <laughs> out, right? Yeah, it could it could be a little bit like that. You know, last year Girls Generation headlined and you assume that, you know, they're the biggest group in the world, that they're going to maybe do more songs than everyone else and they did not. They had five songs just like everyone else and they were great and I was very very lucky to see them and I was excited to see them. I would have not minded, you know, a few more songs from them. This year, you know, they had more artists and it was spread over two nights and so there was some variety in terms of how many songs each artist does and people would come back out for special stages at the end of the concert or things like that. But it was a nice mix of artists, balance of styles and popularity levels, and everyone was really great, I thought. KCON is more than just the concert, and Tamar, you actually participated in a number of panels this year, is that right? Yep, I was on two panels in New York. I was on the same panel, actually, in New York, and A from K-pop fan to K-pop professional. I was on Evolution of K-dramas in L.A., and um, I was on Evolution of Korean Music in New York. To have all these panels, sort of a lot of them verging on academic panels, it's kind of a interesting vibe to add, to add to that. Did you feel like the audiences, and I was at both of your panels in New York, and had very good attendance to the panels. Do you feel like K-pop fans are really into discussing K-pop and things around Hallyu culture in this way? I co-founded the site Cult Scene because I thought that we needed a bit more of an in-depth discussion of uh, K-pop. But a lot of the fans are really intense. Like if you talk to them, like this is their main fandom and they just want to get kind of closer to it. And most of the fans will never ever get to go to Korea where like the main part of this fandom is associated this is the closest they'll ever get to so they're just trying to eat up as much as they can i was on a panel in la with a phd student and she's writing her thesis on fandoms in general not just k-pop but people in the audience were enthralled by her because they just don't have the access to k-pop in their everyday lives anything that they can get they'll take and sometimes i think it actually raises the level of discussion that k-pop fans have like i don't feel like many other fandoms are debating the same sort of socio-political racial discussions that right. i see on like every k-pop fan board on facebook ever well so steven you attended kcon back before there was a new york what year were you there 
I was there in 2013, which was the second year. I think they were starting to figure it out a little bit. One big change that I noticed is it was outside. The concert obviously was inside, but the con was outside, and man, it got it got a little hot. So I, I'd like to give it a shot in the Staples Center. Yeah, I went 2014, and it was still outside. It was better that they moved it inside. So I'm kind of hoping New York changes to some venue if they can. So one thing I'm dying to talk about is the lineup. There's always some group every year that is kind of a surprise. In, in 2013, I was really surprised at the reception that EXO got. Mm. You know, I sort of thought that FX and G-Dragon would be the, the most popular acts there, and, and EXO by far was, was the most popular. And of course, they've only gone up from there. I think that was like BTS this year. I mean, I was right. honestly completely flabbergasted at how popular BTS are. I really, I did not realize, I think, how how much they were loved. When they came out in 2014 at the concert, like everybody in the room was like, Holy, we should be paying attention to these guys because so many people already knew them and were like singing along and they knew everything and they got the whole crowd up. And just to see them headlining this year was kind of like, oh wow, like, the fans of KCON actually know something, and there's definitely a trend to watch there. I think the biggest surprise of KCON LA was Turbo. I don't know if either oh, yeah. of you know them. They're a group from the 90s. Kim Jong-gook from Running Man is like their lead singer. And with one of the other guys, then one of them left. And then the other one, Mikey, the LA guy, came in. They apparently, every single one of their albums since 1995 has sold over a million copies. Like they're one of the biggest sellers in Korea. I don't know if at KCON New York they do this, but at KCON LA, there's a lot of Koreans who get like comp tickets because they work for a corporation or something. So the press seats are usually in those areas. And like my whole section like didn't care about the rest of the concerts suddenly like turbos on stage and they all started dancing it was it was hilarious and awesome and then also like the people who didn't know the songs also stood up and I was just watching this like these guys really are legendary for a reason and I started recognizing some of their songs from covers of groups that I've liked so it was just like wow these guys have really had an influence and like I didn't even know about them until last year when they made a comeback and I was just like oh it must have been a failure of a group because I never heard of them, and I thought I knew everything about K-pop. And then also, I was pleasantly surprised by Monster X's response, because they were there last year and this year, and I thought, oh, they're probably just bringing them back because, like, Starship is related to Mnet and, like, all those things. But they, like, killed it, and the crowd just didn't stop screaming their entire set. The most surprising one, which shouldn't be surprising at all, but it really is, is Astro. Astro, I only know because I have it right for Billboard, is that they're constantly showing up on the World Albums chart. Like, they have a lot of fans. I think it's because they actually have a drama on Netflix called To Be Continued. It's like a web series. I think there's six members. They're just like this bright, cutesy boy band. And like, you just heard the shrieking going on from the crowd. And I was just like, I didn't even know any of their songs before like two weeks ago. And I was like, I should probably listen to this. It's definitely not like my personal taste of music, but they have a lot of potential. And uh, people were saying that they reminded them kind of of like B1A4 and their like cutesy, quirky antics. Right. So it was just really surprising to see how big of an audience they had when someone who's been involved in actually writing about K-pop for several years, I don't think I've seen a single article written about them doing well outside of the Billboard columns. Like literally they just showed up in Billboard and that was it. So there's someone who definitely people should keep an eye out for. I was really surprised. Every artist at KCON New York, 
I thought was very... I, I'm trying to find like the most diplomatic way to say this, but everyone was like very talented. And I don't know that that's always the case, <laughs> you know? Mm. Every artist was like, wow, that person is an amazing singer, like Eric Nam or Ailey or Mamamoo, or just like incredible performance, like Seventeen or BTS. And honestly, I'm not really even a BTS fan, but there was just, you know, so much energy. It was like, there was no low points throughout both of the nights. I was really impressed with the selection of artists that were popular as well as being really impressive to watch. So I think New York kind of had the better talent this year. Right. I'm going to get so much hate for saying that. Um, <laughs> but it's frustrating to watch some of the newer acts walk around stage without any hand mics because you can tell that they're definitely not singing live in KCON. Right, right. That's like kind of a giveaway. Like at the end of it, BTS and Block B were walking around with hand mics, each of the members. But like only two members of G-Friend had hand mics. I don't think the other girls are any less talented necessarily, but for some reason someone decided that those ones, people, I guess, won't be impressed by their belting, so it's better for them to be lip-syncing most of the song. And that's kind of disappointing. I had seen G-Friend in Toronto, and that wasn't the case, and I think that they could have held off on their own. That's why I specifically said G-Friend, because I do think that they have a lot of talent. But we had a lot of rookie groups in L.A. that I think there was a lot of really good potential, and I'd like to see a lot of their singers really develop as vocalists. But for the moment... A lot of them felt very young. Davici performed, and Davici, they're like my peak. If I have a good day or a really sad day, either one or the other, I'll go like listen to them. They get so <laughs> heartfelt in their singing, and their tones are so great. And just seeing them live, everybody in the room was just like in awe of these two really talented women. And then right afterward, Twice came out to perform Uptown Funk, and Monster X came out to perform moves like Jagger. Okay. Yeah, and they were like fun stages, but to have just gone from some of the most talented singers in the industry to some of the newer groups who just don't necessarily have the same vocal ranges across the whole board. Like, I think that both of those groups individually, they have really great members, but as a whole, their sound just isn't as solid as Davichi's is, and it was just kind of a little bit of a letdown. I don't know. I saw the videos of Ailey and her note in New York when the power went out. If that had happened in LA, I don't know what would have happened. We probably just would have heard silence for some of the mics. So just to fill in people who aren't aware, while Ailey was singing Mind Your Own Business, the backing track cut out, but her mic was still on and she was still singing and she's a really great singer and finished that whole chorus without any music. And like you said, a lot of other groups who were maybe lip syncing, that wouldn't have happened. And so I don't think it was planned, but it was definitely like an authenticity building moment, you know, where she is the real deal. She can really sing a really exciting moment to witness. And the same goes for Mamamoo, who you know, like I'm very biased towards. I really, really love Mamamoo, but they were so great. And you can tell that they're all individually so talented as vocalists and also so much fun. And I was really excited to see how much of a fan base they had in New York. I wasn't really sure 
how popular they would be against a group like BTS or Seventeen or a lot of the boy bands, but they had a, a huge fan base. So I was excited to see them and they're still relatively new and did a really great job. I think Mamamoo is one of those groups that like I don't even consider as K-pop idols anymore, even though like they definitely are to some degree, but I didn't hear them first the normal way I hear idol music. So I just like was listening to this song. I was like, oh, this is a really good song. I wonder what indie band this is or something. Oh, yeah. And I just feel like they fall in another range because there's never been a doubt in my mind about how talented they are. And it's kind of saddening that, like, that's not the norm. Like, this one really <laughs> talented group is really super special. And I think we're seeing more and more talent nowadays in K-pop than we were a few years ago. I think I said it on one of my panels in New York. Yeah. Like, now we're kind of getting, this is going to sound horrible, but, like, less pretty idols to some degree. Now, sometimes you'll have a, a member of a group who's not necessarily 100% the ideal, perfect boy or girl group member, but their vocals will be so great. Right. You know, my theory is that the audition shows are contributing to that. That You have a lot of people coming out of those who aren't just picked by the companies based on their their good looking or we'll make them good looking and then we'll train them up. You see that that people who don't necessarily fit the mold are popular with the public and, you know, they're given a lot more chances than than they used to get. To me, the main difference between the New York and the L.A. lineups were the difference between the enjoyment of listening on headphones to the groups and watching them perform, I thought was greater in New York, if that makes sense. That, you know, A. Lee and Mamamoo are groups that, you know, they have a few songs that I really like, but they're not in regular rotation. But if I had a chance to see them live, they just seem like they're made for the stage. Definitely sound-wise, I agree with you. But a lot of the songs that were performed in L.A., I felt like were definitely boosted by the dance performances of them because they were such really talented dancers at LA this year like G-Friend and Twice you have not heard Twice's songs until you're dancing along with them (laughs) this is my second time seeing G-Friend perform their song Rough and I don't know if you know but it's like a ballet inspired dance and they do this one dance move where they're all holding each other's hand behind their backs and forming a circle and like I'm definitely not describing it properly but it's a very cool moment in the middle of the song that kind of comes out of nowhere suddenly. The song is great on its own, but I think that many of the groups who attended in LA, I like them as performers a little bit more than I like them as just plain full-on singers. Do you guys have any thoughts about, you know, where KCON is going? Yeah, KCON isn't about making money for these idol groups. It's about coming over to the U.S. and saying we performed in the U.S. And I think, especially with the rookie groups like IOI and Twice, it was very exciting for them to stand on the stage at the Staples Center and say, I am on the stage at the Staples Center. And same thing with like all the other new acts and, and the older acts also. That's one of my favorite things about KCON is that I know that the idols are trained in reacting and, and all this sort of thing, but it really seems like a lot of times they're genuinely delighted and surprised at the response that they get from American fans. Yeah, they definitely look surprised when they see the crowd and realize for the first time, like, there are tens of thousands, I guess, because KCON officially said they had 76,000 fans at the event over the three days. So just for them to look out at the thousands of audience members in America, where it has such a huge market, it's definitely a boost to them ego-wise as musicians or performers, KCON's kind of like a toll booth into extending their career. Um, That sounds a little bit weird, but like BTS, 
people in a, in the American K-pop audience knew that BTS made it because they had such a great response at K-Con. And it's now become this marker for these are the groups to keep an eye on. These are the groups you'll be seeing topping charts in a few years if they're not already. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with it, but I feel that like the fans themselves wish there was more intimacy with the artists and, and kind of want to see a little bit more diversity. Like there was definitely prior to the performance because it was phenomenal. Some complaining that Block B and Monster X were back after they were just in LA last year. Like that was definitely something people were complaining about. I mean, the K-pop industry is relatively small compared to what we're used to in the US and not everybody fundamentally grasps that. So, I mean, when we were trying to figure out if not for BTS and SHINee, who could have been headliners this year? And this year in particular, we saw like the demise of 4Minute and 21 and Miss A are kind of like falling by the wayside. And all the other acts that had come in the past, you wouldn't necessarily bring for headlining again this year in LA. So yeah, I think XO could headline, but uh, based on popularity, twice you could argue is headline level at this point. Yeah, they were really strong. I think like half of the audience was male for the first time that I ever remember seeing wow. it at KCON. Maybe not entirely, but I looked around the second night and there were so many male fans. Like, And that's not the norm for K-pop concerts. Like, Maybe one in ten is a male fan when you go to like an EXO show here in New York. And these were like big bros walking around wearing the little W twice logo and I thought it was so cute. <laughs> um, I think KCON has a lot of really great things and it's a wonderful few days. I think that as it continues on, it's going to kind of reach the point where people are saying, oh, you already brought this group. Oh, well, you already have three days of programming. What are you going to do next? Like, you can't premiere any music there. The Korean fans would riot if you premiered music here and the, and the companies are always still Korean fans get prominence over all the international ones, essentially. At the end of the day, like it is a promotional venture more than a someone out of the kindness of their heart bringing K-pop acts to America so that the fans can enjoy it. I don't know where you go from here. Three days, so many acts. Like, what's next? Right. Well, it's interesting to me not only what the agencies think they're getting out of it, but Mnet and CJ itself, who put on KCON, and of course now they've got KCONs not just in LA and New York and. Abu Dhabi and Japan and Paris, all over the place. It's interesting, you know, they had a venture going here, Mnet America, which was a cable TV channel, and they had an online presence and so on. And they have changed the branding of that from Mnet America to KCON.TV. Right. And it seems like they have really decided to put their money on the, the KCON brand, which is kind of surprising since Mnet seems to me a pretty powerful brand uh, in itself, but they've decided that KCON is something that, you know, they're going to be able to brand and promote as a worldwide K-pop brand. It might be a little bit because KCON started in the U.S. and Mnet's a very Korean thing, but by saying like, oh, look, this American event is attracting fans from all over the world, it kind of gives KCON and KCON TV a little bit more legitimacy as an English language outlet. Does that mean that we'll finally be getting variety shows made in the U.S. featuring K-pop idols and featuring American K-pop fans? I don't necessarily think so. I know they're doing something with Amber, or they did do something with Amber. I don't know. I just feel like KCON branding for the concerts and the events are really good. I don't know how I feel of it as a TV station. 
So let's move on to our unmuted K-pop song picks. Every episode, we each pick a song that we're thinking about, that we'd like to talk about, because, of course, so many great songs come out all the time that we don't have time to talk about. Tamar, what song have you been thinking about recently? So it's a few weeks old already, but I'm really, really feeling Take Me Now by FT Island. I've always been a huge fan of these guys. This song, my first reaction was, this doesn't sound like K-pop, this sounds like J-Rock, which makes sense because FT Island spent a lot of their career in Japan. But the group has been around for quite some time and did really well early on doing like some very, very poppy things. And then they kind of went to Japan and I think CN Blue took over a lot of like their place in the K-pop world. Mm -hmm. They released Prey last year and you could tell that this is what the band wanted to be making. When they were in New York at their concert, they said it as much. They were like, for years, our company was like, you make this song, you make this song. And when we renewed, we essentially said we want to make our own music. So take me now, like aside from the fact that I think that it's one of their best sounds sonically so far. It was just kind of nice knowing like these guys have been sitting on this music for eight years and are now letting go of what they've wanted to be promoting the entire time. certainly not what you would expect from a k-pop group it's not very poppy and it's interesting that it's done well in korea and on the world album charts too but rock in general is not what it used to be so it's interesting that a group would come in and move from more poppy to more hard rock there's a lot of distortion in this song and you know hard guitar licks and so on and and do so well internationally as well as, as in Korea. It's not really what I would have predicted. The song I'd like to talk about is a more mainstream idol. Faye from Miss A, if there still is a Miss A, released her solo debut, Fantasy. So as you probably say at the start, Faye is one of my favorite idols, so you're not going to get a neutral, objective review this song. But obviously I was looking forward to it and it caught my eye when JYP said that he was going to take charge of this release. He wrote and produced the song and I think, uh, you know, sort of oversaw it in other ways. And oddly, he, he announced this as far as I know through an Instagram post. But what he said was that he wanted to reveal Faye's hidden attraction and that her charm was that she was both sexy and warm and that that was a very rare combination and he wanted to try to show that through the song. So aside from the fact that that makes absolutely no sense at all, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have a lot of surprises or big highs and, and lows and challenging parts, but I mean, JYP knows how to write a song and it has interesting rhythms in the lyrics and repetition and I think the backing track is really good. And so I, just the song itself, I really enjoyed.
The other thing he said in the Instagram post that really caught my attention was that Faye was his fifth muse. He specifically, you know, identified the previous four, Um Jung-hwa, Park Ji-yoon, Ivy, and Sunmi. But I went back and looked at their debut songs, and it's really amazing to compare those to Fantasy. They're all similar style of song, you know, they're all slow, seductive song. The subject matter is sexual, and it seems pretty clear that JYP sort of went back to the playbook and said, I'm going to do the same song. (laughs) Unfortunately, it hasn't been that well received. I don't know if it has anything to do with the South China Seas controversy, or if there's so much else going on, or if if Faye's just not that popular. But it it hasn't been nearly as successful as the ones that JYP seems to have based it on. Yeah. I didn't go back and look at the JYP songs, but as I was listening to it, I kind of felt like it was a sultry, classic high song. Kind of sound electronic coffeehouse music, and this sounds like a sexier version of that. If I was having it all in the background, I wouldn't really be paying attention to the lyrics or anything. That was my thoughts on it. But I was horribly offended by it because I knew that Park Jin Young was behind everything. And I felt like it was extremely demeaning to women. And especially when Korea is having major issues with, I think yesterday I saw a study that like 50% of Korean men have affairs. Korean women have been sexualized for so long in the wars, after the wars. And Miss A's concepts had always kind of been that girl crush, girl power concept to some degree. Like their first song was Bad Girl, Good Girl. And like, definitely there's always sexual overtones. It's K-pop. And I liked the song. I liked the video. But because I knew it had come from... Park Jin Young and he had called her his muse like if Yeon had written this song and performed it I probably would have been a lot happier than if I had known that a male producer who has typically put women in this position before wrote this song uh, I don't I just yeah he's a creepy dude there's no he's a creepy dude there's like, like no like, getting around that <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to say like he's a creepy dude because he's a really phenomenal producer. And I get that it's worked in the past with all the other artists that he's produced. He definitely knows what's going to sell. And I'm really disappointed that this isn't doing as well, either because it's just not making its mark or because of the China issue. I I think I definitely will end up listening to this song over and over and over again because it's definitely the sort of thing that I like listening to. But I, I did not enjoy watching the music video because of that Instagram post. I wish it was a little bit less one note and less creepy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott, what have you got for us? I've been really into the debut single from Romance. Terrible name. Uh, it's like Bromance, but because the B sound and the V sound are the same, basically, in Korean, they chose the V for vocals. <laughs> So, oh, is that what this, it is? yeah, there's yeah. there's so much silliness going on with that name, but they are essentially a brother group to Mamamoo. It's a similar concept: four guys instead of four girls, all sort of vocally focused, like Mamamoo is. This is their first song. She is kind of a up tempo, disco-y, lush disco strings, and this nice fun groove. And Hwasa from Mamamoo is in the music video. She looks great. Oh, she looks amazing. Well, she always looks amazing. Um, but yeah, so all of those things are things that I like. So this checked off all the boxes for me that I've been really enjoying their whole mini album. Action.
I have listened to the whole mini album, and this song, you know, I was really looking forward to it, partly because it's the brother group of Mamamoo, and so I expected something really, really good out of them. And they really build up to this chorus, and they sort of say, you ready for this, or, you know, and there's just pause, and then they hit the chorus, and the chorus is like... It oh, falls flat. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've had such a build-up, like, you're, you're going to love this, and then, well, it's fine. It kind of felt like it could have been a B-side more than a single. I know that's really mean. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely a first single. There's some sort of introducing themselves in the lyrics and in the video, definitely. I'm excited to see where they go from here. But I, out of all the releases this month, this is the one I keep coming back to. So They kind of reminded me of Lovelies. Interesting. Just because they have... I'll explain why I thought this whole thing out before I like open my mouth. But... <laughs> I don't always do that. Um, Lovelies had a lot of hype because they were Infinite's little sister group, and they definitely had a lot of talent when they released their first song, but I just think that a lot of people thought it felt a little bit disappointing because Infinite is known for a certain style, and they kind of expected Lovelies to imitate that style. Yeah, I mean, the vibe is definitely different. Mm. It's less quirky and fun. Or though, I guess when Mamamoo started, they were more sultry R&B. This is neither of those, but I think the sort of core element of we're going to get four idols who are good at singing rather than a balance of like, here's the dancer and here's the visual and here's the vocalist and here's the rapper. The talent is the main focus. And so I think that sonically the sound is kind of different still, but Mm. we'll see where they can go from here. Well, Tamar, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I hope uh, maybe I can run into you and Scott too at KCON next year in New York, or hopefully maybe even L.A., but thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Where can listeners follow you and and read some of what you've been writing about K-pop? So you should definitely look at Cult Scene. It's Cult Scene with a K, K K-U-L-T-S-C-E-N-E dot com is the website. And we can be followed on Facebook and Twitter at Cult Scene, K-U-L-T-S-C-E-N-E. My personal Twitter is currently Tamar, T-A-M-A-R underscore underscore Herman. That might be changing because I'm bored of it. <laughs> Great. So you can follow our show at K-Pop Unmuted on Twitter or find us on Facebook at K-Pop Unmuted. Or check us out on kpopunmuted.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Scott Interante. That's I-N-T-E-R-R-A-N-T-E. Or you can follow Steven. I'm at Tennessee Appeal. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. 